Welcome to the Free Range Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Livermore. This episode is sponsored by the Program on Law, Communities, and the Environment at the University of Virginia School of Law. With me today is Henry Skerritt, Curator of Indigenous Arts of Australia at the Kluge Roo Aboriginal Art Collection at the University of Virginia, which is the only museum outside of Australia that is dedicated to the exhibition and study of Indigenous Australian art. Henry, thanks for joining me today. Oh, it's a pleasure. So I thought we might start by kind of introducing the Kluge Roo and, and the work that's there. Um, you know, maybe just to get us started, what, what are we referring to when we talk about Indigenous Australian art? And, and how did Charlottesville, Virginia end up with this collection? Um, yeah, that's a great question. So um, the Kluge Roo Aboriginal Art Collection is, is one of the two museums at the University of Virginia. And it's the only museum outside of Australia that's dedicated to Aboriginal Australian art. So we have about, you know, a little bit over 3,000 works. Uh, and they cover everything from, you know, stone tools to video art. There's prints, there's photography, there's a lot of paintings. Um, so it's a very big collection. And a lot of people ask, you know, why do we have this here? And there's really, you know, there's really two answers to that question. And and one answer is, you know, we have it here because it was donated by John Kluge in 1997. Uh, and Kluge uh, had seen Aboriginal art in the 1980s at a point when uh, All Things Australia were very popular in the USA. Um, you know, uh, the top, the top, you know, top movie, uh, the top grossing movie for 1987, I think, was Crocodile Dundee 2. Uh, and, you know, Men at Work were uh, tearing up the charts and Elle McPherson was in Sports Illustrated and all that. So there was a lot of love for Australia. And he saw, um, he saw an exhibition in New York called Dreamings and he fell in love with the work. Uh, I think he smelled a bit of a bargain mm. and he um, hopped on his private jet straight to Australia and he started buying with a, a budget and speed that um, really nobody could match uh, in the world. Um, so when he donates this collection to the university, it's, you know, it's a massive resource. Um, and people often ask, when they ask, you know, why do we have it? I mean, they're not really asking how did it get here. They're asking, you know, what's the relevance of this, um, uh, what's the relevance of this collection? Mm. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of answers to that question too. Uh, Aboriginal um, Australian art really is the longest continuous artistic tradition in the world. Aboriginal Australians uh, uh, inha have inhabited the uh, island continent of Australia for somewhere around 50 to 60,000 years. Uh, and they developed um, a range of very complicated um, and sophisticated artistic practices over that time. And then in the 20th century, they began to use those practices for um, um, political representation. They, they began to use those practices to assert themselves uh, in the mainstream domains of law, of, of politics, uh, of environmentalism in Australia. Uh, and so, you know, in one way, it's a very specific, very ancient, very um, uh, traditional um, artistic movement. But on the other hand, it's also really a very contemporary one. It's a movement that um, engages very deeply in the key issues of our time. And it's an art movement that really touches on a lot of the same issues that are so 
um, pressing to contemporary artists here in America, or in Europe, in Africa, Asia, all around the world, those questions of um, how do we engage with cultural difference? How do we think about um, modernity and tradition? How do we um, represent ourselves as different within larger nation states? All of these kinds of questions are the same questions that we see um, being tackled by artists everywhere. Um, and yet in Australia, we have them being tackled by these artists who are drawing on this extraordinary uh, and beautiful long tradition. Hmm. That's really fascinating. And, and so, um, you know, thinking of that connection between, um, between art and, and politics in this particular kind of context of, of Australia, maybe in the, in the 80s and 90s, are, are there kind of particular moments or particular movements that um that will that will kind of stand out or were transformative or 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 uh, nicely illustrate the way that the that artists and the and activists and political actors were kind of interacting in a, a productive or interesting way absolutely so i think right from the very beginning that aboriginal art had a highly political dimension I think that as early as the 19th century, artists were creating works that were designed to show these new colonial invaders who they were, where they were from, to assert their um, ownership of, 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 of places and their continued presence uh, in, in these, you know, burgeoning cities. Um, but it does really hit its head, hit, it does really reach ahead in the 20th century. And um, at the moment, uh, we're working uh, with a group of artists from a community called Yerikala in the northern tip of Australia. And, and for the last seven years, we've been working with them to curate um, an exhibition that tells the full story of their art. And I think that they've been one of the groups that's been most, um, most, explicit and most successful in some ways uh, at asserting their works into, uh, into this political discourse. Um, most famously, uh, in 1962, uh, the federal government of Australia um, granted permission for a Swiss company to create the largest uh, ever bauxite mine and refinery mm. on their land on the Gove Peninsula in northern Australia. And they did this without um, any consultation uh, with the Indigenous people uh, and, um, uh, you know, just excised the land from the Aboriginal reserve um, without notice. And so the Yungu people um, banded together and they produced two petitions on bark. Um, mm. And so they, they cut the bark from the eucalyptus tree and painted it with the traditional designs and on it um, uh, uh, pasted two typed petitions, which were, ty were written in both English and um, uh, Yungamata, their language. And they were the that was the first time um, with the tabling of those petitions into Australian Parliament mm. that the assertion of Aboriginal land rights had been taken into the mainstream political domain uh, of the Commonwealth of Australia. So at the same time as this, uh, the Yungu people from Yirrkala took on the mining company, Nabalco, and they took them to, them to the High Court of Australia in a case that would become uh, known as uh, Millerpum versus Nabalco. And that was the first mm. time that um, Indigenous Australian land rights had been tried 
in, in the legal system in Australia. And that case was ultimately unsuccessful. But what was really interesting in the, um, in the judgment, the, the judge, um, Justice Blackwell, said, um, you know, that he, he recognised that Indigenous people have this strong uh, and deep connection to their land, um, but that uh, within the legal structures available to him, he could not uh, rule in their favour. Um, and that set off a chain of events uh, leading uh, eventually to the ratification of the, Na- uh, the Northern Territory Land-, Land Rights Act in 1974, which did begin to return land to uh, Indigenous Australians. So in a sense, those Yolngu were able to take their art and use their art, insert it into a political system that, you know, had a created a lot of setbacks, a lot of roadblocks, but in the end, won them their land back. Yeah, so really, it's a, this is an amazing story. And and so is this the, the same art tradition and group that you're working with uh, right now in the, in the collection um, that you're cur- curating um, uh, of, of bark paintings? Yes, absolutely. So, you know, the point of this exhibition, uh, which is called Marayan, Eight Decades of uh, Aboriginal Australian Bark Painting from Yirrkala, is really to trace this story, this story um, which begins in 1935 of Yungu engaging with outsiders in order to assert themselves um, politically and artistically. And what's so fascinating about it as a story is that you know, Miller versus Nabalco um, was a great movement, but in the 1990s, these same um, group of artists, the next generation of these artists, including Milrapum's son, Wanyapi Marika, um, do it again, right? Mm. They head back into the courts and they produce a large number of paintings in order to win um, what win sea rights, in order to win mm. rights to their ancestral waters. Um, and again, 19... 97, they're not initially successful, but in 2008, they are, in fact, granted their um, uh, rights to um, rights to the tidal, tidal basins of their bays um, in the case um, Gower and Gumana versus the Northern Territory. Uh, so, you know, it's, a, it's, it's, it's an amazing continuing story of um, artists using the power of art to, um, to win their rights. Yeah. Now, maybe maybe we could actually even talk through some of these pieces. It's a little, uh, it's a it's an interesting challenge to do this in the podcast format because obviously we're voice only, but um, we we do live in a in a technological age, so we can. Um, I'll put some links in the description, and and maybe we can you know listeners who are interested can 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 kind of follow us along, um, just to kind of get a sense of um, you know your read and 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 the way that you interact with some of these pieces in their history. Yeah, that sounds that sounds great. So, um, so why don't we start with this painting, which is called um, Jumba Poingu Mana, or the the Shark of the Jumba Poingu Clan, uh, by the artist Wilson Mangery Gunnambar. Mm-hmm. All right. So, what do you see in this? What do you see in this painting, Mike? Ah, great. Okay, <laughs> start with me. All right. Well, you know, so, so I I love all this work, and and part of the. Um, what's so interesting about this is it's a tactile element that's hard to get online. And so I'm sure when you're in person, this is a three-dimensional object, there's shape to it. Um, you know, there's a kind of a, 
you're not going to be touching it, but it, it, there's a, there's a, it's, it's, I assume it's going to have some heft um, to it. And then, you know, one of the things that I think is, is wonderful here, you have these repeating kind of geometric patterns with this um, abstract representation of a kind of abstract, but it is a representation of a shark. Um, and then, you know, uh, you know, are the geometric patterns representing waves? It's like there's a lot of kind of motion happening there. Um, you know, up at the top, I mean, almost have to zoom in here to see. It looks like the bottom half of a, of a human figure kind of embedded in, uh, you know, I want to say like an orca or something like that. That, that but, you know, the, there's kind of this arrowhead looking um, uh, 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 figure at the top. Um, that again incorporates some of the same geometric patterns and colors that are happening outside. Um, so anyway, that's just a, f a couple of quick uh, uh, impressions that, that I that I have. I love it. I mean, that's an A plus in um, in uh, visual analysis there. <laughs> Um, yeah, so look, I mean, I think that description is, is, is pretty great. So we've got a painting here and it's divided into two, two halves. And in the bottom half, you can see this um, shark, right? And that's pretty clear. I mean, that's a, you know, it's a pretty clear figurative depiction of a shark. And if you look closely, you can see that the shark has been speared in his head mm. with four spears. And so, you know, that's what we can see here. And, and, and if we you know, you can read um, the the whole story of this painting, which which we've got online from from Manjuri. But but put simply, this shark um, is swimming around, minding his own business, and he gets speared um, by an ancestral figure by the name of Muriana. And because this shark is a, is a you know is a powerful ancestral shark, it's not just any old shark. It um, doesn't turn around and swim out to sea. It mm -hmm. burrows into the land and it creates the river system of the Guriala River, right? In its death throes, it flips backwards and forwards, creating this river. Mm. And while this is happening and the shark's body is disintegrating, right, its, its fins go off and form, you know, rocks in the bay and its skin flails up and it forms the casuarina trees along the banks of the river, and while it's doing that, its body is emanating these designs, these patterns that are mm. depicted all around um, the shark on this bark. And so one way of looking at this painting is a sort of a before and after, right? Here's, mm -hmm. here's Mana being speared but at the bottom, but then at the top he's, he's, he's disintegrating, becoming part of that landscape. Now, if you asked Manjuri, he would tell you that if you went to those this spot, Gorilla, and you, you know, looked at the ways in which the sun sparkled on the waters or the ways in which the wind shuffled through the trees, those would be the evidence of Mana's presence in that place. And so it makes you realise that these patterns are very, very powerful because they were laid down in the earth the very moment that the earth was created by this ancestral being, right? They're not just um, made up designs, but they're the designs that manifest the ancestral power of mana. And so in ceremony, in ceremony, these designs would be painted on the boys of, on the chests of young boys. And those boys would be wearing those designs not to disguise them, 
but rather to reveal their inner essence as an ancestor of mana. It's a very powerful idea. Yeah, that's really wonderful. One question that comes to mind is maybe somewhat more general, but the relationship between these these traditional stories and and a work work like this that you're describing, which is produced was produced in 1996, so it's a relatively contemporary uh, work of art. Um, is it? Do you do you see this as? I guess I just yeah. Like I want to dig into that that relationship between the traditional stories and the and the contemporary art is. Um, is this object, say, something that would would have been produced 100 or 200 years ago? Is it similar to works that were around at, the, at that time? Or is this something where what we're looking at here is, you know, very much of a contemporary moment in an interpretation of, a, of an older story? Yeah, that's a that's a really great question. And it, you know, that's a, there's a little bit of controversy around the answer to that. Um, because obviously, we, we, we can't, know with any certainty um and i've heard i've heard jung um uh, argue both sides of this uh question but put simply you know i don't think a painting like this of this kind of complexity and sacredness would necessarily have been painted on bark in the pre-colonial times these designs are very much the designs um, that would have been painted on the body um, and they might have been painted on bark every so often if somebody was trying to kind of illustrate what those designs looked like, um, mm. you know, show somebody, you know, this is the design. But in a, in a general sense, I think they were mostly painted on the body during ceremony. Now, that really changes in the 1930s and 40s. Um, and um, one of the things that's great about this exhibition is we're able to been able to bring some of these works from the 30s and 40s um, to the United States uh, from Australia. Um, and seeing as, seeing, as, uh, seeing as this is a, a semi-legal podcast, um, <laughs> I'll, um, I, I, I'll, 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 I'll tell you that there's a good story with this because um, it, it was actually against the law for these works to leave the country. Hmm. Under the um, under the the um, removal of um, cultural heritage act, mm-hmm. um, but uh, cult- cultural material of this age could not mm-hmm. actually leave the country, and we were working on this big show with which was curated by uh, a group of Yongu. Um, who were the direct descendants of these painters, and they were were really upset that you know I had this sure. moment where where you know where one of the curators Waka Murungu was saying, "What do you mean my father's paintings can't be in the mm-hmm. exhibition? They have to be in the exhibition." And so, um, thanks to their lobbying, we were actually able to get the um, the the legislation changed in federal parliament mm-hmm. uh, in order to allow these works to, to temporarily leave the country for the exhibition. Um, but what happens in the 1930s, right? It's, it's, it's a, again, it's a really interesting political story because in the 1930s, um, there are quite a number of um, uh, Japanese fishing crews coming to northern Australia to um, harvest uh, sea cucumber uh, or trepang. And um, in 1932, Two, there's a, a bit of a, a, a sort of a skirmish between one of these fishing 
um, cruise and at the Yungu at Caledon Bay. And the um, fishing crew um, disrespect one of the elders, Wongu Munungur, and are, um, uh, are massacred by the Yungu. So these five mm. Japanese fishermen are killed. And this causes a bit of a diplomatic crisis because yeah. the Japanese government is, is not at all pleased and are putting a lot of pressure on the Australian government to send what they would call a dispersal party, mm. which essentially means go and massacre, uh, massacre the Aboriginal people. Um, but in the 1930s, uh, that notion of wholesale massacring uh, is, is beginning to be a bit um, uh, politically uh, on the nose because there's the foundation of a number of organisations um, such as the you know, Friends of the Aborigines and, and so on. Um, and so the government is really looking for other options than just wiping these people out. And part of this, you know, it's a very long story, but, but as part of it, they send an anthropologist up by the name mm. of Donald Thompson I know that's, and, and I think Donald Thompson was sent on a bit of a suicide mission, to be honest. Mm. Um, but he befriends Wongu, and in return, Wongu and his sons paint, you know, some of the most extraordinary paintings, um, really, of the 20th century. And these paintings are painted for the absolute purpose of showing Thompson so that Thompson can take these paintings down to Canberra and show that they are the rightful owners of these places, mm. right? That, that they were defending their place, that they, were, that they are the owners, that they have the cultural knowledge of these places. And that's really, I think, the first time that you see these very sacred designs being painted on bark. And some of them, are, you know, some of the ones that we have in this exhibition are, um, you will see they're very literal facsimiles of what's mm. painted on the body mm. to the extent that on the bark you will see, you know, sort of sections that are meant to be painted on the, um, on the um, thighs and shoulders of the initiates in the ceremony. Wow. It's a, and it's a fascinating, really interesting, incredible story. And the, the, the interaction between the... Um, you know, kind of the claim to property rights and then the, you know, the relationship of the stories and the art to the, to the landscape and to the, the stories. It's just such a, it's such a fascinating, fascinating nexus. So one, one question that comes to mind, this is a, this just kind of a point of fact kind of question is how, um, how widely shared are these stories um, that we're that we're talking about here? For example, the in this for this for this image that we're looking at, this is um, the shark, um, it, you know, with the with the particular river system that you know is presumably very geographically located. Are, are these the kind of motifs that continue to reappear, or you know, obviously Australia is a huge country with lots of different cultures. Basically, is what I'm what I'm getting at. And so, how how broadly shared are these across the um, you know, the, the various cultures, the pre-colonial cultures that existed or, you know, today um, as well? Or are they, are we really talking about kind of different um, cultural traditions that are quite distinct from each other, maybe with, with, with some shared um, elements or some, um, you know, resonances, but, but really a lot of distinctiveness as well? Yeah, that's that's a that's a great question. Um, so you know, when Captain Cook uh, arrives, um, you know, in Australia in April of seventeen seventy, 
there's um, there's uh, believed to be about half a million people living on the continent uh, and speaking around about 250 different languages. Um, but when we say that, I mean, obviously, people who are living side by side have, you know, will often have similar languages in the way that we think about the difference between, you know, the many European languages, you know, Swiss and German and Belgian are not all that different, but, but they are distinct languages. Um, but what's really interesting, you know, when you, when you think about these, um, these narratives, these ancestral narratives, um, the term that Aboriginal people will often use for them is songlines. Because although, you know, although this, we're looking at a painting, uh, this painting would have an accompanying song. Mm. And these songs can be um, hundreds of stanzas long. Mm. And what the songs will tell is not just, you know, the story of Mana the shark at one place, but it will tell the story of the shark's travels. And what those travels will do is they will connect one place to another place and one, that place to another place. And what that does is it connects, you know, people from different clans and people from different countries. Um, and, and so in order to, you know, perform a particular ceremony, a lot of negotiation goes on to work out, you know, who owns which part of the chain mm. of the song, right? So who owns which part of the chain of the song? Now, some of these narratives do, in fact, cover, uh, you know, thousands of miles. Mm. Um, but, you know, like any narrative, they shift and they change as they move. Um, but I think, I think you know, if you wanted to, um, you know, perhaps this would be challenging today, but I think in the pre-colonial times, if somebody had wanted to, I think they probably could have created a map um, of the song lines that looked a lot like, you know, the New York subway map, mm. um, connecting every point um, as ancestors move across the country and intersect with other ancestors and meet, um, you know, and one song line ends and another song line takes off and all that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, in one way, you know, these song lines are the kind of um, world's most poetic and beautiful GPS system. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but they're also a lot more, you know, they're also um, really ways of talking about ownership, of ownership and belonging to places and, um, you know, a whole cosmology that is, um, that is really, you know, quite extraordinary. Yeah. Well, maybe we could take a look at another uh, one of these pieces that are in the in the upcoming collection. Yeah, let's. Um, well, let's look at this one by Jamawa Marawili, because I think um, this one um, takes us in a really different direction. So Jamawa Marawili came to Charlottesville in 2015 uh, as part of an Australia Council uh, residency. And he was really excited to see the collection here. And in fact, one of the major works in our collection is a painting of Jambawa's from 1996. Um, And Jambawa looked through the whole collection and he said to us, um, he said, you know, this is really good, but what I want is an exhibition that tells the whole story of Yongo Bark painting from 1935 to the present. And he wanted it to tour all around the United States. And he set us this challenge to which we, um, well, you know, when Jambawa Marawili tells you to do something, 
you kind of have to, <laughs> you don't really have a choice. Um, but so we've been on this foot journey with, with Jambawa. And a really important part of the journey for Jambawa was um, that it engaged the, the, the artists working today, uh, in part because he really, you know, he's really made it an important mission of his to make sure that young artists are painting, that they're painting properly, that they're, um, you know, um, placing uh, significance on these designs and, and ancestral narratives. Anyway, so he suggested that we commission um, works from all the new artists. So we, we've been undertaking a commission um, we undertook a commission and we commissioned 33 works from 27 artists uh, who are the leading artists working at Yokala today. And all along the way, we were saying to Jambawa, well, Jambawa, you know, you've got to create a work for this. And he, he kept saying, yes, 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 yes. So we got 32 commissions in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we're like, Jambawa, you know, what's happening? What's happening? Where's your painting? And I, we got this great call and and uh, it was, Jabba was at the art centre and it was from the manager of the art centre, Will Studs, and he said, look, I'm about to show you this, I'm about to show you this painting. And I said, well, is it any good? And he said, it, 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 it's quite bespoke. <laughs> and he said, and I think if you don't like it, the whole project is probably off. Yeah. Um, but he unveiled this painting and it's really quite extraordinary. Um, so tell me what you see in this one. Right. Okay. Great. So, so this is, and 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 this the, the title of this is Journey to America, right? Yeah, that's um, right. And so, so at the top is, you know, that this might be the Statue of Liberty, and maybe, and again, I, you're not in person, right? And so I suspect when you're really close to what, what are the dimensions of this, by the way? Well, this is huge. I mean, this is 106 inches tall. Great. So it's really big. So the stuff that on the screen looks kind of smallish is going to be is going to be good size. So I'm, I'm almost imagining if that's Monticello or not. That might be my location in Charlottesville, uh, having something to do with that. But then just to kind of expand back, you know. There's again the kind of repeating geometric patterns, different colors here. Um, you know, we've got these kind of reds and and oranges and kind of you know almost like a deserty kind of uh, color uh, palette. And then figuratively, again, there's at the top there's the uh, what maybe is the Statue of Liberty there. On the bottom, it, it, it looks like almost like an insignia, like a, like a house insignia. Um, maybe that's a kangaroo on the left. Um, again, this is, you know, I'm, I'm guessing a little bit. <laughs> no, you're doing great. Uh, and then, and then, then, then what's really dominates the, um, uh, the image, um, or the painting is, um, you know, kind of this oblong, uh, you know, lined, um, I'm not sure if that's an object, if that's representing a landscape or it's representing like a plant that's coming up from a landscape. But those are the kind of the two things that, that come to mind is either it's it, it's like an island that's surrounded by, you know, again, maybe waves, maybe, um, you know, like a desert landscape or it's a it's like a plant that's coming up out of out of the landscape. So anyway, those are a couple of quick impressions that I have. I love it. I mean, that's uh, that's a 
a, a brilliant analysis. No desert. Remember, these are sea seafaring. Uh, these are seaside people. But mm. so, I mean, this painting, Journey to America, or uh, America Lily Marchi, as it's said in in Yongmata, it's it's fascinating. You're right. At the top of it is the Statue of Liberty. Uh, at the base, which is is really hard to see, in the centre of the base is um, is is a is a crocodile man, right? Mm. Crocodile man, man Baru, the crocodile man. So Baru was a man, and he was um, sitting at the beach at a place called Yatikpa, and he has a fight with his wife, and he goes to bed very angry. Um, and his wife's very angry, uh, and she goes and sets fire to his hut. And Baru comes running out on fire, and he dives into the waters at Yatikpa, and a number of things happen. And the first thing that happens is he's transformed into a crocodile. He gets mm. scarred with all these diamond patterns that you can see down the middle of the painting. Um, but as he stands up, the... Um, you know, he's transformed into the crocodile and he stands up with his fire sticks and he brings this ancestral fire, this powerful mm. flame into the world and he puts it into the waters at Yatikpa where it flows on to all these other clans. And so what's really interesting in this painting is at the base you've got Baru doing that in the centre. To the left he's put the um, crest of the crest of Australia, the, the Australian crest, the kangaroo and emu holding a shield. Um, but these flames are firing up the bark, right, and mm -hmm. they're crossing all these waters. These designs on the sides are, are the, you know, the rolling deep waters of the ocean currents. But this, water, this fire is charging its way across and at the top it's meeting the Statue of Liberty. Hmm. And there's a great mirroring here because if you look at the base, Baru is holding up his two torches just hmm. like the Statue of Liberty is holding up his, uh, her torch. And so, you know, the message of a painting like this is it, it, it's really like what is, what is Jambawa trying to achieve in the exhibition, Maran? What is he trying to achieve in his art? And it's taking that fire to the world. Mm. You know, often when we people talk about um, Indigenous arts, they often talk about it with this kind of um, what we'd call a salvage mentality right this preservation mm. mentality mm. that oh we're like it's so important we got to keep these things because the traditions are dying or you know the people are dying or whatever but what Jumbo is saying in this is the exact opposite he's saying here you know we have this power this ancestral power that mm. comes from Baru and it's by sharing that with the world that we get strength mm -hmm. and it's really that that's been the kind of that's been the kind of um, mo of the Yungu artists over the over the last um, over the last ninety years has been this. You know, if we put our art out into the world, um, that gives us power. It gives us presence. It gives us um, uh, political representation to put our law, the Yungu law, alongside the law of the Australian government, the law of the American. Uh, Republic and and so you know I think it, it, it's a pretty this is a pretty special work. Yeah, it's really it's really something it's really something else and it, it is and the, you know the kind of the dueling torches or the I don't know if dueling is the right word but the 
um, juxtaposition of the two torches and and then the the, the colors make uh, you know in the context of the story that you know the reds and the oranges are the are kind of representing these flames reflecting off the water or at least that's what I'm kind of seeing there yeah um, yeah that's really it's it's really it's really fantastic I mean and that raises all kinds of of interesting questions I mean one um, you know this the 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 interaction of you know this the these communities or these communities arts and you know kind of the 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 global art conversation or the global political conversation and kind of you know I think it'd be interesting to just you know return to the theme you were just mentioning of maybe the relationship between um, kind of political representation versus something like a uh, you know appropriation, which I think is another you know, idea that's out there that people worry about, you know, if just returning back to the, um, you know, the kind of the cultural objects act or what the, the law that you were referring to that, you know, was, uh, intended to keep, you know, certain, you know, um, certain, uh, works in the country that were, you know, deemed to be culturally important. I mean, obviously there's a long history of kind of pulling, you know, of colonial, you know, pulling art out of countries, expropriating, um, important, you know, historical or cultural objects, um, you know, expropriating or appropriating, um, even artistic motifs and, you know, throwing them on an Ikea, right? I, I don't want to say I can, that, that sounds accusatory. I have no idea what Ikea's ever done. No, that. no, no. But actually it's funny you say that, right? Because, you know, one of the artists in this exhibition, um, Yang Arini Wunung Muru was the first Australian artist to have his copyright granted mm. uh, in, in in a legal case because uh, it was uh, one of his designs was appropriated for a carpet um, so you know yeah I mean look that's a that's that's a problem and a problem that um, um, indigenous artists are still grappling with in Australia um, I think in Australia you know one of the the successes has been really that with um, communities putting uh, their you know um, uh, uh, taking the front foot on that. So right now, um, whilst, uh, you know, a place like Yirikala, the artists are working on bark with natural pigments in other communities, there are big drives to produce licensed materials, silk screened works, mm. um, that sort of thing. So, you know, taking, taking the front foot on that, but, but it's still a major problem. Um, but, but I, I'll, I'll, I'll tackle that from a, slightly different angle um, because it reminds me of something that Jamboa said while he was here mm. and he was talking to my students in the art history department um, and he was looking at a painting very similar to this and he said, look, look at those diamonds, you know, and he says, see, in those diamonds you can see Baru the crocodile and you can see the flames and you can see the waters crashing over and he stopped and in this kind of big you know barrel chested laugh he was like <laughs> and he's like that's just the kid's story <laughs> right and he said underneath that are layers and layers and layers of meaning that only I get to know as an initiated marapa man right and so you know one of the things about um one of the things about working, say, on a project like this is that it's also, it's, you know, f these designs will have, a, have what they call kind of like a surface story, like the mm -hmm. surface of the water, but underneath that uh, are, are layers that are not meant to be shared. 
um, that are not meant to be put out into the public domain. And so part of a project like this is really about building trust to, um, you know, to make sure that everybody feels comfortable with what is being put out because that knowledge is often considered to be very sacred, very dangerous, very, Mm. you know, um, uh, valuable. Um, So there's, you know, so there's appropriation, but there's also questions about um, giving giving people the um, the power and the authority and the um, ability to control which parts of the narrative are shared. Hmm. Yeah, because I mean, it always struck me that there's a there's a interesting, difficult, and important tension um, between that kind of respect that you're talking about and also, um, you know, engaging, right? That That's a sign of respect is to kind of, you know, uh, you know, to, to, to engage with, with work that's happening, you know, all over the place and to not kind of cordon, you know, some of these, these artists or some of this conversation off to some, you know, kind of mystical, you know, in the past doesn't, you know, doesn't kind of, isn't engaged with the contemporary art conversation or political conversation. No, I think that's right. Um, you know, and it, but it's quite funny, you know, so we've, we've put out, we've, we've, we've published a quite major catalogue for this exhibition and it's a catalogue that's bilingual. It's in um, English and Yungamata. I suspect it's the first um, time that a bilingual catalogue in an Australian language has been published in the USA. Um but throughout it, that kind of um, concern is raised repeatedly and repeatedly by elders about, you know, making sure that Yongu control the limits of how much is shared. But I tell you, like this book is like 300 and whatever, 80, 48 pages, 348 pages, and it has so much in it. And I like, you know, I've been working on Indigenous Australian art for 20 years and I feel like I know, you know, one, one millionth of it. And so that I think like a lot of the concern, <laughs> but I think is kind of the, you know, these senior men and women, their heads are, you know, they're like the Alexandria library of, mm-hmm. of, of information and knowledge. And honestly, I think even if, even if every, humanities scholar in the world was trying to mine it they would still only scratch the surface so you know there's a funny there's a funny part to this which is that um um you know people who say they want to you know get the deep story the full story i mean there's so much of the surface story that hasn't been recorded that 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 isn't widely available or known that um um, you know, I don't think anyone should fear that they're not getting enough information. <laughs> it's like learn what you, you know, you got to learn all the kids' stories before, you know, you got to learn to walk before you can run. Right, right. Yeah. Um, so I think we can, we have time uh, for, for, for one more. So let's, let's maybe talk through one, one more piece if, if we can. Yeah, let's. So, um, so this is another new one. Um, uh, and this one here by Nongirna Marawili. So Nongirna is, uh, is, is one of the oldest um, painters working today. Uh, she was born in 1937 and she didn't really, um, you know, she didn't come into the mission at Yirikala until 
the 1950s. So she, she really did spend most of her formative time living traditionally with her father, um, the great um, uh, warrior Mundukul Marawili. Um, and it's, it's kind of an amazing thing to think about because, you know, this week the Tate Modern uh, just announced that they were acquiring one of her works. Oh, wow. have just acquired one of her works. So you've got an artist here, grew up in a traditional setting, is, who has work in the Metropolitan Museum of Art and the Tate Modern and the Museum of Contemporary Art in Australia and all these important collections. But, um, you know, Nongirna, senior lady, huge amount of knowledge, probably... Um, as much knowledge as anybody. Uh, but um, in 2015, she started doing these kind of very unusual paintings like this one. And um, it really does bring up some of these questions of you know, tradition and innovation that we were talking about because um, Nongana starts painting these works with these kind of incredible sort of flashes of lightning across them. You can see, mm-hmm. see all these, you know, great white um, uh, lightning bolts running across. And, you know, you can see in, in the negative space, she's sort of creating these incredible d- diamonds um, patterns, which really um, allude to, uh, you know, those, those diamonds that we were looking at before coming mm-hmm. from Baru's fire. But if you ask Nongirna, she'll tell you, she'll say, oh, no, 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 I'm not painting those sacred designs. I'm just painting my own idea, just the ideas of the waters and, you know, I'm just making it up. And it's so interesting because she keeps saying that, but the, they, these designs have this extremely uh, uncanny resemblance to those um, traditional designs. And, and so, you know, I was talking to Jambor about this and I said, you know, what, why do you think her designs look, um, look so much like these, these, you know, clan designs and Jambor, he, 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 um, we were sitting in the art center and he said, well, look at her painting. And he says, and now look at mine. And he's like, and look at her painting and look at mine and look at hers and look at mine <laughs> and now squint a bit. And he said, you know, she is painting. She's not painting the designs. It's just that the country is speaking through her. And so he, he was making this incredible metaphor, which is that, you know, try as she might, um, her understanding of place is so embedded in this system and so embodied in these ancestral designs that even if she was trying her hardest not to paint them, she, uh, they, they would still unconsciously or subconsciously come through in her paintings, the country speaking through her because she's such a part of that country. Now, I mean, that's a beautiful poetic um, account, but I think there's a bit more to it as well, which is that in traditional Yungu culture, um, the uh, men are the custodians of these painted designs. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it was only in the 1960s and 70s that women you know, really started to paint and were given the, um, you know, for want of a better word, permission to paint these ancestral designs. Um, but what's really interesting in Nongirna is that around 2012, 2013, she started moving away from those, you know, sacred designs to these designs that are much more fluid and much more individual and much more, um, 
you know, inventive in many respects. Mm-hmm. And, and what I think is really fascinating about it is that she will tell you, oh, no, I'm doing that because I don't want to, you know, trespass on the men's domain and I'm respecting the men. But she's also building up this immense amount of power by her ability to engage with the art market um, and, and, and engage with the contemporary art world. So here you have very traditional lady, very steeped in ancestral knowledge, but she's painting these works that grab the attention of the contemporary art world because they're so inventive. At the same time, um, you know, she's keeping all of these allusions to the ancestral designs because that's how she shows her power in the community. Okay, right. So, so here you got an artist who's playing this very complicated double game, where they're trying to speak to two very different audiences at the same time. They're trying to speak to a young audience, and they're trying to speak to a um, you know contemporary art audience in the me- metropolitan contemporary art audience, and doing it in the most kind of wonderful, inventive, uh, f- explosive fashion. Yeah, no, that's really that's really wonderful, and that. That that's just a fascinating idea of, you know, creating a, a work like this. Um, that literally, it's it's like um, it's just if you could imagine a text that you read one way in one language and another way in another language, or something like that. It like literally just means two different things to two different um, communities depending on the knowledge that they bring and their perspectives and so on. Um, so that's a, a really fascinating thing. And do you think that that is that something that is special to to this community and and this and this group and this art tradition, or do you, do you see that as something that maybe is is broader in the world of art, or yeah, in the world of art, um, and maybe it's kind of illustrated and well encapsulated by by this group and this and and some of these um, some of these works, but maybe that's something that that actually does exist in a in a in a bigger way. Um, yeah, I, I think it's the driving force of a lot of the best Aboriginal Australian art. But I would also say it's the driving force of all of the best contemporary art being produced in the world today. Because I think that for artists to engage with the world today, they've got to be engaging with um, a, a, you know a globally connected world, right? There are no people who live in a vacuum anymore. Nongana Marawili, you know, grew up um, living nomadically in northeast Arnhem Land, but today, you know, she exists in a world that, you know, where she's sitting with curators from the Tate Modern, even though she doesn't speak any English. Right? We are all connected. And so the challenge of great art today is to express both um, the particularity, right, who we are you know, where we're coming from, but also how we're connected, right? So every great artwork has to be doing this double thing at the moment of speaking both to its place and to the world. Um, And I think, you know, I think that's what makes Aboriginal artists so compelling is that Aboriginal artists are not sacrificing any of their own unique identity, but they're producing these works that so seamlessly cross-cultural and geographic boundaries that that um, insert uh, their their identities into this 
you know, larger dialogues of art and politics and environmentalism without giving up any of um, the power of where they're coming from. You know, we see that in Jambawa's work. We saw that in Mandarin's work. It's very present in Nongirna's work. Um, but, but that's the same as you would say for um, artists like um, Eleanor Sui or artists like um, Ai Weiwei. You know, the, these are artists who are coming from very particular places, expressing very particular cultural traditions, but doing it in a way um, that also is able to uh, speak globally to the, the, the important issues of our day. Yeah, it seems like this is, you know, this is not just an issue in, in, in art or, or the, the world of art is kind of reflecting and, and incorporating just just the kind of, the, as you were kind of noting, just the reality of modern existence and really uh, the challenge is like a deep challenge that we face. I mean, when I think of environmental issues, we have, you know, interconnection is the is the hallmark of contemporary environmental issues um, like climate change, but, but others as well. Um, but I think in a, some sense, it, what we have had a hard time doing um, is understanding how to um, think about these global issues while also kind of respecting or cultivating kind of a healthy um, kind of localism maybe would be the way of describing or something like that, where I think there's a sense in which, um, you know, uh, thinking, essentially thinking globally, it can be threatening to people's affinities and identities. And then, and then there are you know, kind of movements that, that take advantage of that, of those types of concerns. And so figuring out how to um, be respectful of tradition, be respectful of affinities and identities while still um, doing that in a kind of an engaged way um, in a, uh, uh, where change is also possible is just a very tricky balance to strike. And I wonder, you know, if you think there are particular lessons that the, that the you know, for the rest of the world, as, as they, we, we all negotiate similar challenges that, that you think this particular community, which has been under so much profound stress for so long, but has, um, you know, still manages to be so vital um, in, in, in its art and in, in, in many other ways as well, um, that, um, you know, lessons that you've seen or, um, you know, perspectives that, that you've seen that you think are particularly um, useful or illuminating. Oh, a hundred percent. I mean, I, I think the whole movement is is an extraordinary cross cultural gift. You know, as you said, I mean, these are people who've been uprooted, massacred, um, you know, prejudiced against, continually um, uh, denigrated by you know mainstream Australia, and yet, you know, their response is to continue to you know give this incredible aesthetic gift to the world um you know what what is the lesson i mean that's a you know that's a hard hard question but i think a lot of the lesson is that um there are ways in which we can communicate right just because we don't understand each other perfectly maybe we don't speak the same language we don't you know belong to the same tradition there are still ways that we can speak to each other um, and that's that's what I think this work is doing. You know, like I think Nongirna, you know, it, it, she's such an extraordinary and strong woman, and she is communicating her work 
communicating who she is in her work. She's communicating where she comes from with all of these complexes of knowledge and um, and wisdom. Um, but I think that the lesson that comes in here is, you know, that there can't, that, you know, Nongina is probably as different from me and, and you as anybody on the planet. Hmm. But through her art, she's finding ways to communicate. And she's finding ways to, to, to find our common ground. And I think that's the, the real lesson here. Great. Well, that's a, it's, it's a wonderful sentiment. It's wonderful work that you do. This, and the, the, the artists have really, as you said, it's, it's an incredible gift that we all benefit from. So um, thanks so much for, for you know, bringing, bringing this to us and, uh, and for chatting with me today. Oh, thank you. And I should say, you know, that the exhibition, um, Marayan Eight Decades of Aboriginal Australian Bark Painting from Yerikala, will be opening at the Hood Museum of Art at Dartmouth in September mm-hmm. of 2022. And then it travels to um, Washington, D.C., Los Angeles, Charlottesville, and New York City. So there's lots of opportunities for Americans to see it. Um, and so I'd really recommend that uh, they do. Great, wonderful. How long will the, will the exhibition be on, on, uh, showing in the States for? It will be showing um, from September 22 through to January 2025. So there's uh, a good period of time to catch it. Great, wonderful. Well, I hope many people, I'm sure many people will, I hope many, many listeners do. Um, I certainly will be. And, um, and yeah, it's, it's uh, been great, great chatting with you. Thank you.